Welcome to the story of the Old Testament. This is Pastor Spencer here. This is week number 13. Week number 13, March 26th through April 1st. And we're here in Leviticus um, reading chapters 16 through 24 and Psalm 61 through 65. Thank you for joining us. Um, It's great to have you listening. And I hope you're being encouraged by this podcast and by the reading of the scriptures. And I hope it's uh, encouraging you, um, you know, just helping us to continually meditate upon God, know him more, and his love to us in Jesus. So we're here now going to be walking through Leviticus chapter 16, which becomes the, which is uh, the day of atonement. In some ways, it's kind of like the center of the whole book of Leviticus, um, the height of the whole book. Because that day of atonement was so, so important for God's people. And then we have, again, emphasis upon uh, the morality, sexual morality, the call to be holy as the Lord is holy, loving your neighbor, and so on. Laws and commandments that the Lord gives to his people um, to, to be like him. So the first thing we want to talk about is the day of atonement, however. And this was the the, <clears throat> the height, <clears throat> in a sense, of uh Israel's uh, worship in the Old Testament, um, and it was the year time whenever the high priest would go into the holy place and um, you know put the blood there as a sin offering, and um, and so let's think about this this aspect of atonement. What is this? What are we talking about? Why is it important? Um, and so on. This is uh, called "Go Home Justified" from John Bombaro. Go Home Justified from John Bombaro. He says this, The atonement has fallen on hard times. In a day when theological taste means more than truth, Jesus' blood atonement in a substitutionary death smacks unsavory. It's flavored with too many unpalatable themes, the wrath of God, punishment for sin and treason, and a gruesome crucifixion. It isn't that atonement theology is newly distasteful. After all, 85 years ago, H. Richard Niebuhr summated the mainstream theology of his day, saying, A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without the cross. Such thinking, both then and now, calls for acquiring a taste for the atonement, because it's the staple diet served up at Jesus' table. It seems, however, that these hard times for the atonement are only getting harder. For instance, we hear fresh rumblings for a more productive theology. Confessional theology, we are told, is too reproductive, reproducing the same old slaughterhouse doctrines. Such static dogma needs to give way to creative approaches to the work of Jesus, productive concepts with attractive features, the kind that appeal to our tastes or better our prevailing anxieties, like the exploitation of the underprivileged and environmental concerns. Jesus' death needs to address such things and with favorable outcomes, so we are told. Indeed, a modern gospel for modern man. Yet it isn't just theologians and their devotees in declining atonement theology. Many in the church don't understand the meaning of the atonement either and so undervalue it. To such ears, especially in a culture that decries all forms of violence, a blood sacrifice for sin may sound barbaric. And to teach it to children perhaps borders on criminality. It's little wonder why the atonement has all but disappeared from contemporary theology and modern pulpits. 
But since atonement is found in the epistles of Peter and Paul, and since the Holy Spirit illuminates this doctrine in the book of Hebrews, and since its ample references in the Old Testament find fulfillment in the New, and since a crucified Jesus was drained of his blood as the Passover lamb, only to manifest it in Holy Communion, then it must be recovered and boldly proclaimed as the gospel of God. Atonement is the sine qua non, an essential condition of the gospel. One text in which we find the atonement on the lips of Jesus is the short parable, the Pharisee and the tax collector, Luke 18, 9 through 14. Jesus tells this parable to some people quite certain that a blood atonement was unnecessary for them because they trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. As Philip Ryken observes, Jesus tells a story about two men, two prayers, and their two destinies, one to condemnation, the other to justification. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. While Jesus paints a fascinating picture of the Pharisee who, while boasting of keeping the outward law, seems oblivious to the divine standard of perfection in the inward parts, it is really the tax collector that brings the atonement into focus. Unlike the Pharisee who was given to inordinate self-love and self-justification over against others, it was the tax collector who went home justified. Rather than counting on his own merits, he entreated God for mercy. The tax collector stood at a distance and would not even look up to heaven, but beat his own breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Note the parts of the tax collector's prayer. God, a sinner, and the mercy that came between them. It's the notion of mercy that leads us to the atonement, and it is the atonement that provides a foundational basis for the justification of sinners. When he prayed God, he meant the covenanting creator, who is awesome in holiness and righteousness. This was apparent by the tax collector's posture. He kept distance. He refused to look up to heaven. This was because he had a proper fear of God's holiness and his own lack of righteousness. Spatial reference come into play that lead the reader into sacrificial considerations. The Pharisee is nearer to the temple's altar, but further away from God, the source of justifying righteousness. The tax collector, although further from the altar, stands closer to God in faith by pleading for mercy. The reason for his fear and faith was that he knew he was a sinner. The Greek uses the definite article. The tax collector believed that he was the chief of sinners before God in Israel. Rather than comparing himself over against others as the Pharisee did, the tax collector measured himself against the perfect standard of God's holiness demanded by the law. Against that standard, the only one that truly matters, he knew himself to be guilty, unclean, and unrighteous. He could only appeal to God's grace for an act of mercy. God's mercy brings us to the most striking feature of the tax collector's plea. He says in verse 1 the equivalent of, God be mercy seated to me, the sinner. The Greek verb here for have mercy is memorable, and it means to propitiate or expiate, that is, to atone for sins by a blood sacrifice. In a single word, the tax collector cries to God to look upon him through the lens of Leviticus 16 and 17's atonement narratives. In Leviticus 16, the high priest was to make an annual atonement for the sins of God's people. He was to begin by offering a bull to atone for his own sins, as well as those for, this, for his household. Then he was to take a perfect male goat and sacrifice it as a sin offering for the people of God. The high priest shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, 
and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and from the mercy seat. Leviticus 16, 15. The term here for mercy seat also is rightly translated as atonement cover. The passage then continues with numerous references to the atonement. What the tax collector recognized was that the goats represented God's sinful people, of which he was the chief. But he also understood that, in a symbolical fashion, the sins of the people were transferred to the goat by way of divine arrangement through priestly imputation. Treasonous sins were imputed slash imposed upon the animal, and with them their guilt. The animal did more than represented the people. It was a substitute for the purpose of sacrifice, a blood atonement. It was necessary to put the animal to death because once the sin of the people were transferred, it had to die, for the wages of sin is death. Sin breeds and begets death. It warrants and necessitates justice against the one who has committed high treason against the Lord of heaven and earth. Once the goat bore the sins, it succumbed to the penalty for sin, but also made a blood atonement because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The tax collector saw himself immersed in the narrative of Leviticus 16, but especially the rationale of chapter 17. There, God says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life, for the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. The reason blood took away guilt was that it showed that God had already carried out his just penalty against sin. The blood was the proof. The priest then sprinkled that blood on the mercy seat, which was the golden lid atop of the Ark of the Covenant located in the most holy place within the temple. It is called the mercy seat because thereupon set, as it were, the presence of God. Sprinkling blood on the mercy seat evidenced that an atoning sacrifice had come between God and sinful man. It literally came between God and the law beneath. To all this did the tax collector appeal. And yet, in a sense, he didn't. He seems to have looked past the temple to an ultimate action of God, whereby the blood of the atonement brought completion, total satisfaction indeed. Safety were for the chief of sinners like himself. The blood of bulls and goats couldn't do it because animals are not equal to humanity. They cannot truly represent human beings any more than a cow can represent a defendant in a court of law. This is why the people were prohibited from eating or drinking the blood of those sacrifices. But differently, they were not to have union with that blood. It remained distant from them, much less in them. And so the tax collector could stand outside the temple with its sacrificial system and, looking beyond it, appeal to God's perfect atonement, his once-and-for-all atonement that would be, at the same time, the blood of communion by one who would represent Israel, the Messiah. Of God. Still, the atonement narratives in Leviticus taught that when the sacrificial blood of the substitutionary life was placed between God and sinners, then two things were accomplished. They are expressed through the essential theological terms expiation and propitiation. Expiation refers to covering sin and assuaging guilt. David speaks of expiation in Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven, whose transgressions are covered. You forgave the guilt of my sin. Once the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat, forgiveness was granted and no further guilt that remained. The sins of God's people were expiated for that year. 
The tax collector not only desired to have his sin covered, but to be counted not guilty, and so no longer feel and think of himself as guilty. Expiation was essential to the hope of justification, but he wasn't just looking for it that year. He desired it to be effectual over the course of his lifetime. Then there's propitiation, the turning away of God's righteous anger. It explains what the atoning sacrifice accomplishes. Wrath assuaged. Divine wrath is not a violent emotion, the passion of a hothead. As a divine attribute, it's a holy and righteous indignation to the opposition to his rule and being. God's wrath explains why the high priest only came into God's presence with the blood of the sacrifice. But once atonement was made, then sin was expiated and God was propitiated. Yet all of it was without finality. There was an only insofar as limitation to those sacrifices of old. Daily as well as annual sacrifices needed to be made until God cut a new covenant in blood and dealt with sin once for all and significantly provided the righteousness necessary for justification. Such righteousness could be found in the blood of the righteous one, for the life is in the blood. The tax collector, not entering the temple but standing outside, appeals to God by way of the grander narrative of his grace. Reaching back to a time when the Creator made a sacrifice in Eden and clothed our first parents in the promissory but bloody garments of God. An event replicated when Moses sprinkled the, the Israelites with the blood of the covenant, putting them under the blood. The tax collector trusted that God himself would be present in a man who would be the representing Davidic king and mediating Melchizedek priest, providing the blood of the atonement as a substitutionary sacrifice that would cover not only the altar, the cross, but also clothed the people of God, which is symbolized in baptism. The blood of the atonement would wash sinners into the new covenant, clothe them and cleanse them. They would be baptized in the blood. Here is the remarkable point of Luke 18, 9 through 14. This is what Jesus's character of the tax collector was praying for when he said, God be merciful to me, a sinner. He solicits mercy in light of a sacrifice of expiation that would be at the same time a propitiation. He pleads for that to be between God's wrath and his guilt. To put it more accurately, he begged for God to be somehow beyond the temporary measures of temple sacrifices. Mercy seated toward him with finality by mercy seating himself as Messiah. That is, by providing his own atonement sacrifice and further being washed by that blood and drinking it. It was his only hope of being set justified. Only in the blood of God and Messiah could there be eternal life, for the eternal life is in the blood. Among other things in this parable, Jesus directs his auditors, including us, not to the sacrifices of the temple, but to align ourselves with the tax collector to gaze beyond the temple altar to the promise-making, promise-keeping God who foreshadowed an ultimate engagement with sin when the Lord God passed through the bloody pieces divided by Abraham, Genesis 15. We, t- we are to align ourselves with the one who has faith in God and Messiah to achieve the atonement with which we may have our union, that is, communion in the blood. Christ's life is in the blood, that is to say, the eternal life is in his blood, and he gives it on the altar of the holy cross to make atonement for our souls. That blood, or plainly the flesh and blood of Jesus, is his holy baptism, and it constitutes the self-giving of Christ in holy communion. Through Emmanuel, God has dealt decisively and finally with sin by mercy seating himself amid a bloody atonement 
and at the same time as king facilitates representative righteousness by fulfilling all the law through obedience. Obedience that led to even death on a cross. In Jesus' account of the gospel, the tax collector's faith toward God in Christ's act of mercy sent the man home justified. Jesus tells this parable so that we might know that God is mercy seated toward us through his crucifixion. His death was our substitute. His cross is our mercy seat. And Jesus's use of this Greek word even may have intended a graphic correlation. The Romans occasionally used a sedile, a small plank or post on which the crucified would pause while suffocating in the inhale, exhaled position. It was meant to prolong the agony of death. The Shroud of Turin, for example, evidences that crosses, if not the very cross of Christ, had a sedile. Significantly, a sedile was also euphemistically called a mercy seat. Whether the cross of Golgotha bore a sedile or not, the tree of crucifixion is the mercy seat of God, our expiation and God's propitiation. And now, through the sacrament of the altar, the blood of the atonement manifests for us so that we may have our communion with the sacrificed lamb. This is why the New Testament so often describes the death of the Messiah as a sacrifice and why he ever appears before the throne of God as the lamb standing as though it had been slain. The new covenant wants us to understand his atonement in light of the sacrificial system of the old. The father out of his great love for us transfers, imputes our sin and guilt onto Jesus, his son, so that he becomes sin and a curse for us, a curse of judgment who was nailed to a tree so that we go home to God justified, having been washed in his righteous blood. When we say that Jesus' sacrifice saves us, we mean that his death accomplished exactly what the mercy seat accomplished and so much more as the once for all blood atonement. Indeed, the atonement is an acquired taste. Acquisition of it comes by way of owning the gospel and all of its assertions. While many today may be tempted to emphasize that Jesus' death was representative of perfect, obedient love for us to the Father, even to the demands of the cross, nevertheless, while that secures the act of righteousness of Jesus on our behalf, a substitutionary blood atonement was required to remove sin and immerse us in the life of Christ. You cannot have one without the other. A half-baked gospel of representation turns out to be no gospel at all. Instead, the whole counsel of God includes both a bath and meal in Jesus' blood by way of atonement. So there we have it. Jesus' cross always points us um, to um, his... uh, the day of atonement points us to Jesus and his perfect cross. And you'll notice again, um, and this is something that I, I think uh, is important, helpful to us. You'll notice this is another, this is a Lutheran writer who's writing this, I believe. Um, and one of the things they consistently do is bring up baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, um, some we have disagreements with Lutherans about what exactly happens and who should be baptized and what happens in the Lord's Supper. So we have honest disagreements about that. And in fact, in, in one, one thing here I put, because uh, he mentioned baptism, and I inserted the words um, that's symbolized by baptism. Because for us, baptism is a means of God preaching the gospel to us. 
confirming it to us, but baptism itself doesn't actually come and um, create faith in our hearts as if it um, regenerated us. And similarly, the Lord's Supper, we don't believe Jesus's body is really present there, but we do believe that Jesus is speaking to us through that. Um, so on the one hand, we, do, we disagree with Lutherans and others on uh, the ordinances or sacraments, depending on how you want to call them, baptism and the Lord's Supper. On the other hand, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? And perhaps this is something that we can always be reminded of, is the important role that baptism and the Lord's Supper should have in our Christian life as, as Christians, as, as the church, and, and what it points to us. Uh, it points the cross to us. Baptism and the Lord's Supper both point to us. Jesus Christ, baptism reminds us of dying and rising and being immersed and put into Jesus and being named with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Lord's Supper, of course, is is a symbolic meal, but Christ is there giving us himself. Um, not that we're literally eating the body and blood of Christ, but the, the meal is meant to be Jesus preaching to us that he is giving himself to us and we're receiving him through faith. So it should also then remind us of the important role that baptism and the supper should have in preaching the cross to us as believers because we still need that every day, don't we? And whenever we take the supper or we watch baptism, um, it should remind us and we should remember our baptism and appreciate the Lord's Supper as a meal that is meant to strengthen our faith because of what it preaches to us. Okay, another thing theme we're going to talk about here in Leviticus, uh, these chapters, is the theme of holiness. In fact, God, this is where God says those famous words, right? Um, chapter 19, verse 2, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So there is this call in Leviticus to be holy. Again, in chapter 20, another call, again, to be holy as the Lord is holy, to be perfect as Jesus might put that, right? Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And this brings up the whole question of what it means to be holy. What is sanctification? How should we understand that? And um, let's think about this. This is Chad Bird. Uh, What is sanctification? Revisiting the Old Testament for the answer. If you're on the operating table, you don't want your surgeon to say to a nurse, hand me one of them sharp thingamajigs. You want him to have a specific name for a specific tool to perform a specific job. Words matter. The medical field has distinctive terminology by which it carefully defines diseases, medicines, instruments, and the like. When it comes to our bodies, we have a very high expectation of our doctors. They better know what they're talking about. We should expect no less, indeed far more, when it comes to pastors, priests, and teachers of the Word of God. They handle the Word of truth. They minister to body, soul, and mind. They better know what they're talking about. We don't want to hear from them, now that divine power is doing some religious stuff in you. Precision in language is necessary. We want God's Word unapologetically, lovingly, and carefully proclaimed to us. Unfortunately, that doesn't always happen. Consider the word sanctify. Sanctify basically means to make holy. There's a whole cluster of words in this linguistic family. Holy, holiness, sanctify, sanctification. Often, however, it seems to me that the words sanctify and sanctification are dug up from their native soil of Old and New Testaments and replanted in a strange kind of spiritualized moralism that focuses on what we do. 
The result? Sanctification is understood primarily or even exclusively to mean the life of good works. Now, good works are certainly necessary. They are central to the life of a Christian. By doing good works and living out our vocations, we serve our neighbor in love. But the life of good works is not the way the Bible talks about sanctification. In fact, it's almost completely contrary to it. Such a view makes us the active doers instead of the faithful recipients of sanctification, as if our actions make us holy. They do not. Therefore, let's quickly survey especially the Old Testament background of holiness and sanctification to do a hard reset on our understanding of what it means for God to sanctify us. Let's begin with a foundational truism. God alone is intrinsically, essentially, and everlastingly holy. Holiness, like divinity, is an exclusive possession of God. You alone are holy, Revelation 15, verse 4. God is holy, 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 as the seraphim sing. Holiness is a 100% God thing and a 0% human thing. We can exercise ourselves into physical shape or study ourselves, ourselves into mental shape, but we cannot sanctify ourselves into holy shape. Wait a minute, you might say. Aren't times, places, people, and things called holy in the Bible? Yes, of course. God says the seventh day is holy. The ground around the burning bush was holy. Israel was a holy nation. The inner room of the tabernacle was the holy of holies. Well, then if God alone is holy, how can these other things be holy too? Because the Lord has chosen them to be so, made them to be so, declared them to be so. He has shared his holiness with them. As John Kleinig writes in his Leviticus commentary, Israel never possessed his holiness. They received it from him, just as we receive light from the sun. This too is crucial to realize. In the Old Testament, holiness was spatially anchored to the presence of God in the sanctuary. The closer something or someone was to the direct presence of Yahweh, the holier it was. That's why the inner sanctum is the Holy of Holies, or most holy place, and the outer sanctum, only the holy place. Likewise, even the metals used in the tabernacle and temple signified this. Gold, then silver, then bronze, like concentric circles, were used in proportion to their nearness to the inner sanctum. The Holy of Holies was covered in gold, and farther out, the altar of burnt offerings was made from bronze. So basically, the nearer to God something was, the holier it was whether people, metals, fabrics, bread, oils, etc. Sanctity was all about spatial proximity to Yahweh. This also explains a possible confusion. The Old Testament occasionally talks about consecrating ourselves or sanctifying ourselves. For instance, God says, consecrate or sanctify yourselves. Leviticus 11.44 or 27. 20, you mean 20 verse 7. The priests who approach God are to consecrate or sanctify themselves. The priests and Levites consecrated themselves. What does this mean? Notice first that immediately after God says, consecrate yourselves, he adds, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Leviticus 20 verse 8. In both verses, the verb is the same. God is the sanctifier. The Lord is saying, I have made and continue to make you holy. Continue to be what I have made you to be. This means, especially for the priests, do nothing to put yourself into a state of ritual impurity, and if you do, perform the rituals I have provided for your cleansing. Self-sanctification, that is, somehow generating holiness by one's own efforts, is an impossibility. 
We can no more self-sanctify than we can self-deify. When God called Israel to be holy, he spoke to a people he had already declared holy. As Kleinig says, God called them to obey him because they were holy. Over and over in the Old Testament, therefore, God is the holy maker. He is the sanctifier. By his word and sacred rituals of sacrifice, he bestows his holiness. He draws things and people into his presence to share his holiness with them. The transition from the Old into the New Testament with regard to sanctification is a relatively smooth one. The big change is this. The location of holiness has changed. It is no longer the temple in Jerusalem, but the flesh and blood temple and tabernacle, Jesus Christ. He is the Holy One of God, the Holy Servant. John sees that the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are the temple now. The inner sanctum is the body of Jesus Christ. He is the source of all holiness and the agent of sanctification. From head to toe, heart to mind, skin to bones, Jesus is the Holy of Holies. This is why Hebrews says, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We are made holy by his sacrificed body. Jesus also suffered outside the camp in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. His blood makes us holy. Paul calls believers those sanctified in Christ Jesus and says that you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Notice all of these are past and completed actions. In these verses, our sanctification is a finished action done by Jesus. We have been sanctified by the sacrifice of Jesus, made holy by his blood. It's a done deal. What about ongoing sanctification? Yes, the New Testament speaks of that also. Paul writes, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, 1 Thessalonians 5.23. But who does the sanctifying? God, not the people. Hebrews says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Note that the verb is passive. We are being sanctified, not sanctifying ourselves. Jesus prays to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Again, who does the sanctifying? The Father. How? By his truth, by his word. As in the days of Israel, so also today, sanctification is still all about spatial proximity. Proximity to Jesus. The Holy Spirit, as his name suggests, makes us holy by pulling us into the holiness of Jesus. He carries us to Jesus in his church, where we can be in his presence. There we are washed in the waters of his sanctifying baptism, hear his voice in the preaching of his sanctifying word, eat and drink his sanctifying body and blood from his altar. By the Holy Spirit bringing us close to the Holy Savior, we are sanctified, made holy, share in his sanctity. Will good works in a holy life flow from the sanctifying work of Jesus? Yes! But sanctification is not what we do, but what God does for us in Jesus Christ. We are not the active doers, but the faithful recipients of the divine gift of sanctification. Jesus makes us holy. We are made holy. All glory, praise, and honor be to him. So we are to be holy as he is holy. 
his sacrifice, his death on the cross for us, his pouring of the spirit upon us and be by faith receiving that is what separates us, consecrates us, devotes us to his service where his presence indwells us. And so when we come to hear the word of God, we again are coming to hear his voice, to be with his people, and we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Well, reading Leviticus should comfort us to see that all of these things that were pictured and portrayed, this holiness, this sacrifice, all of this we find fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And what a wonderful privilege it is to live in the New Testament, to have and to know that all is finished. Thank you for listening to this. Um, We will continue in Leviticus next week. So keep reading. It's going to be a lot of fun. Take care. God bless.